course of my life, I've interviewed for a number of different roles and the interview committee or whatever, those people are always asking the same kinds of questions. They want to know about your background. They want to know about your credentials. They want to know about your qualifications. They want to know about your experience because they're trying to determine if there's a fit between the success that what the job requires, what success looks like and what you have to offer, right? Because if you want to get, you've got to get this right, right? You want the right person for the right assignment if you're going to have the right outcomes. Now, in the first century, there was one position in particular that many people were longing to see filled, but nobody was applying because nobody was qualified. The job title, you ask? The Savior of the World. <laughs> And then one day in AD 29, during the ministry of John the Baptist, as he was calling people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, to make way for the coming of the Lord, a fellow by the name of Jesus of Nazareth stepped out onto the stage of world history and became the savior of the world. But who is this Jesus? What, what is his background? What are his credentials? What are his qualifications? What's his experience? Hmm? How, do, how do we know he's up for such an important monumental assignment? Not just anyone can be savior of the world after all. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 verses 21. We're going to look down all the way to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 today. You'll find today's reading on page 859. And in the, this passage, Dr. Luke is about to give us Jesus' background, his credentials, his qualifications, and his experience. Dr. Luke is going to show us that Jesus stands alone, uniquely prepared to be a Savior like none other a savior like none other. Luke chapter three, I'll begin reading here in verse 21, again, page 859 in the Pew Bible. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jannai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of 
Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliachim, the son of Maliah, the son of Manah, the son of Mataatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Renu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamach, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Machalaeliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And <laughs> chapter four. <laughs> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and all this glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their heads or on their hands, he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. What we have here in this passage are really three distinct accounts concerning Jesus. We have his baptism, we have his genealogy, and then we have this story of his threefold temptation. And those accounts might seem disconnected at first, but I want to show you today that they come together quite meaningfully. Uh, but to begin, let's consider each of these accounts in turn as we discover Jesus to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Son of of righteousness. There's your outline for this morning. Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of Righteousness. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we begin? Father, thank you for sending us Jesus, the one like none other, a Savior who can deliver us from the great problem 
of our sin debt before you. And so, Father, help us to see the glories of our Savior today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First of all, the Son of God, the Son of God. When we left off last time, you'll remember that John the Baptist was calling the people to be baptized uh, as a sign of their repentance for the forgiveness of their sins to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And of course, people were wondering if John himself might be the Christ. And you'll remember that John disabused that notion in chapter 3, verse 16, when he said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And sure enough, here we have in verse 21, Jesus arriving on the scene. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, the first question that many of us probably have is why on earth Jesus gets baptized at all? Uh, After all, he's the perfect son of God. He has no need to repent of his sins. He has no need to have forgiveness. He has no need to prepare himself for the coming of the Lord. He is the Lord, right? He is the one who is going to make the payment for sins for the forgiveness of all the people. He is the one who is coming after to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why does he need to be baptized? Hmm? Well, what's obvious is that whatever this baptism is for Jesus, it's very different than the baptism that John is calling everyone else to respond to and receive. So what is going on uniquely here in the baptism of Jesus? I think there's four things going on. Number one, by his baptism, Jesus is affirming John's ministry. By his baptism, Jesus is affirming John's ministry. Jesus is reminding the people that John is, in fact, a true prophet of God, that what he's saying and doing and calling the people to repentance, this is a message from the Lord. So he's endorsing John's ministry. Secondly, I think through this baptism, Jesus is identifying with the people. Jesus is identifying with the people. Remember, Jesus has come to bear the sins of the world, to take upon himself the weight of all the guilt and shame and sorrow of all humanity. And as he steps into the waters of repentance here for sins that he did not commit, Jesus is doing so on behalf of the people he has come to save. It's a preview, if you will, of the cross where Jesus will lay down his life for sins that he did not commit, substituting himself on behalf of the people he has come to save. So he's identifying with the people here. Thirdly, at this baptism, this is an opportunity for Jesus to be endorsed by the Father with the Spirit. Jesus is endorsed by the Father with the Spirit. This is the perfect occasion for the Father to go public and let everyone know just who this Jesus is. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Jesus is endorsed by the Father, and he is empowered by the Spirit. Fourthly, with this baptism, Jesus is bringing hope to all creation. Jesus is bringing hope to all creation. Now, what do I mean by that? It's interesting here that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, he says, like a dove, a dove, fluttering, hovering, alighting upon Jesus. It's a fascinating picture. And this imagery of the dove hovering connects with two key Old Testament texts. Can you think of what they are? The first one is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where we read, Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Of, of the water. So here we are at the dawn of creation, and you have water, the waters, from which all of creation is about, will emerge, is about to emerge and burst forth into life as the voice of God goes forth. And just before that moment happens, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. That's one reference. The other reference is in Genesis chapter 8, verses 8 to 12, where Noah sends a dove to fly out over the face of the waters in search of life after the great flood. And just as the waters are receding and the dry ground is emerging from the waters to burst forth in renewed life once again, the dove flutters back to Noah with a fresh olive branch plucked in her beak as a sign of hope for the renewed creation. Now, we're supposed to connect these dots, I think. So at the dawn of time, you've got all, when all creation is emerging from the waters and the spirit is hovering, then you've got this flood where the soiled creation has been washed away and the renewed creation is now emerging from the waters and a dove is again hovering, and now the Son of God, who is just revealed to the world, and with him is the dawning of a new creation. As he emerges from the waters, you have the Spirit hovering like a dove and coming down upon him. You see, in this baptism, Jesus is bringing hope to all creation. This is the beginning of the world made new, made whole, made right and beautiful and glorious again. This is the moment the seed of the new heavens and the new earth drops down into the soil of this decaying world and sprouts to life, a life that will emerge that will grow and will not stop until it reaches full blossom in the world without end. This is no ordinary baptismal candidate here. This is Jesus, the Savior of the world. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Dr. Luke wants us to see and understand that Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. Where does he come from? 
What's his background? He comes from the Father. He is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the image of the invisible God who is pleased to dwell in the flesh, in our midst, and in him all the universe will be made new. This, this is the Son of God. He is divine, divine. Secondly, we see this is the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Not only is Jesus the Son of God, but He is also Son of Man. He's born of the Virgin Mary, and He's legally named as Joseph's son and heir. And Jesus is therefore fully God and fully man, which is why Luke gives us Jesus' human, earthly, legal genealogy in these verses, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. And it goes on from there. Most people assumed that Jesus was Joseph's biological son, uh, but Luke has placed this human ancestral line right after the Father's declaration. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's his real, true, heavenly genealogy, you see. You, I, I, I'm your Father, the Father says. You are my beloved Son. That's his true heavenly genealogy. What follows now is his earthly, human, legal line, the one that Jesus inherits through Joseph. Now, there are three striking figures in Jesus' legal line here, and I'll just highlight them in particular. The first one is he's the son of David. He's the son of David, which means he's the rightful heir to the messianic throne that was promised to David's line in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is also the son of Abraham which means he's eligible to inherit all the covenant promises that God gave to his people beginning in Genesis chapter 12. The, the, the land, the name, the blessings of the covenant, Jesus can inherit them all. And he is also son of Adam, which means that he can be the seed of the woman foretold who will reverse the curse and crush the serpent's head. It's fascinating. In Matthew's genealogy, uh, he stops with Abraham. He traces back to Abraham, but no further, because Matthew is trying to emphasize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But Luke traces all the way back to Adam because he's emphasizing that Jesus is the savior of the world of all the human race. Dr. Luke wants us to see and understand that Jesus is human. Jesus is human. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man and he has come to save us all. What are his qualifications, you ask? Well, he's the son of David. He's the heir to the throne. He's the son of Abraham. He's an heir to the promises. He's the son of Adam. He's the heir to all of humanity. Jesus is son of man. He is human. Son of God, son of man, and now son 
of righteousness, son of righteousness. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. <laughs> That's like the over understatement of the century, isn't it? Notice the setup, though, here. He, he, Jesus is full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. In other words, he's right smack in the center of the will of God. So these temptations that come are not a sign of his spiritual weakness, but actually his spiritual strength. It's really important if you're ever facing temptation. It, it may not be that there's something wrong with you, but that Satan's coming after you. So for 40 days, he's been fasting, spiritually preparing himself for ministry, deep, deepening his dependency on and intimacy with his father. And it is then that the spiritual attacks begin. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command these st this stone to become bread. What is this temptation? It's a temptation to stop depending on his father's provision, to show himself to be the son of God, to fend for himself like an orphan and make way for his own provision, to turn this stone into bread. And Jesus answers, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where he's reminding himself and Satan that it is God who provides for his people. Uh, just like God sent manna to the people of Israel in the wilderness when they had need, God will provide for his faithful son in the wilderness when the time is right. Jesus is saying, I trust my Father and I look to Him. I'm not gonna hijack my life and do my own thing. I choose to live like a son, not an orphan. Verse five, then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. In a very real sense, Satan has hijacked this world for himself. John chapter 12, verse 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11, Romans 8, verses 18 to 30, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Ephesians 2, 2, 1 John 5, 19, Revelation 13, verse 2, they all acknowledge that Satan is the ruler, the temporary ruler over this world. But of course, it's temporary, isn't it? It's temporary. One day, Satan will be made a footstool for King Jesus when he returns to rule and reign forever. And all that authority is Jesus even now. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, after the cross and the resurrection where he triumphed over sin, death, and Satan. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus has this authority by virtue of his death and resurrection. But Satan's temptation here is to offer to Jesus everything that will one day belong to Jesus by rights, but without the cross. Worship me and you can skip the cross. All the glory with none of the suffering, 
Just bow down and worship me. My way is better than your father's plan. And Jesus responds, verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is a summary of Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, where Jesus makes it crystal clear where his loyalties lie. He will follow the Father's will through the cross to glory. He will take no shortcuts along the way. Then verse 9, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's interesting. In this temptation, Satan quotes scripture. This is from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And this temptation here is to presumptuously force God's hand to make him intervene in an artificially created crisis in order to quote unquote prove that he loves his son. It's both manipulative and selfish. And Jesus will have none of it. Verse 12, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which references in the original context Israel's selfish manipulation and grumbling against the Lord in the wilderness when they needed water. Did, did you notice in, these, in each of these responses, Jesus quotes from the early chapters of Deuteronomy? That's where he's quoting from. These are the early chapters that chronicle Israel's wilderness wanderings after the exodus from Egypt before they got to the promised land. And it is full of Israel's failures, their grumbling and disobedience. And you'll remember in those passages, God repeatedly refers to Israel as my son, my son Israel. And so now all these years later, the one to whom the father just spoke and said, you are my beloved son, with, him, with you I am well pleased, has gone into the wilderness, do you see the parallels? And instead of grumbling and disobedience and failure, this son is full of trust and obedience and faithfulness. Jesus is the true and greater Israel. He's Israel as he should have been. And not only that, Jesus is the true and greater Adam, the Adam who should have been. Remember how the genealogy ended. Adam, son of God. As in Adam and Eve, who were tempted by the serpent to distrust and disobey God and who utterly failed the test and plunged all of the world into this horror that we know. And now in the very next scene, we find the true and greater son of God, the new Adam, being tempted by the serpent to distrust and disobey God, but he succeeds. He is victorious. He is triumphant. This is amazing. 
Did you, do you know what the very next verse in Psalm 91, that's the one that Satan quoted? The very next verse out after the bit that Satan quoted, do you know what it says? It's amazing. Psalm 91, 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. It's an allusion back to Genesis 3.15, where it is foretold that the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed will crush the serpent's head. And don't you love, don't you love that Satan couldn't bring himself to quote that section of scripture in the presence of Jesus? He, he knew who he was dealing with. This is the true and better Israel, the Son of God who will trust and obey in the wilderness. This, Jesus is the true and better Adam who will reverse the curse and crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the true and better humanity who has been tempted in every respect as we are and yet is without sin. Dr. Luke wants us to see and understand that Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect. He alone is faithful and true. He alone went toe-to-toe, face-to-face against the devil and prevailed. Nobody else in all of Scripture has ever done that successfully. And then verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Friends, the struggle isn't over. Satan will strike again. And we're going to have to wait till chapter 22 to see him rear his ugly head once more during the Passion Week. But I, for one, am siding with the faithful one. He's full of the Spirit. He is resting in his Father's good pleasure. And he is the Son of Righteousness, perfect in every way. Don't, don't, you, don't you see all these passages, like, they come together so beautifully, so wonderfully? They're not random. They're, they're, they're on purposely clustered here. In his baptism, we see his divinity. In his genealogy, we see his humanity. In his temptations, we see his perfections. In other words, Jesus has the exact background, credentials, qualifications and experience to be a savior like none other. You see that? Who who else could fully bear the cosmic weight of all the sin of all of humanity throughout all of time? Only the divine son of God could carry such a weight. Who else could fully represent humanity before God as a substitutionary sacrifice? Only the human son of man could do that. And who else could fully satisfy the infinitely righteous requirements of a holy God? Only the perfect son of righteousness could do that. Don't you see? Jesus is the Son of God, who's also the Son of Man, who went face to face against the serpent, not only in the wilderness, but upon the cross, 
to regain what Adam lost because he's the son of righteousness so that all who believe in Christ might come home to God so that the words that the Father declared over the Son at his baptism might be true for you and me, for all who believe in Jesus Christ. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Friends, only Jesus could do that. He stands alone. He's uniquely prepared. He's categorically unrivaled. Jesus is our only all-sufficient Savior. Not just anybody can be Savior of the world, you know. This is a Savior like none other, and His name is Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Oh, what a Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have sent us the most beautiful, the most wondrous, the most accomplished Savior. We could never have saved ourselves. Adam ruined so much, but Jesus is up for the task. He can do what no one else can do because he's your divine son. He's fully human in our place and he's perfectly righteous in every way. Son of God, son of man, son of righteousness. He's our only hope. He's our only all-sufficient savior and we cling to him and give him praise and glory because he's worthy of it all. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name, amen.